Praise God. It's been such a blessing to um, see God do what he does in, the, in his church. We understand, and I think if you ever lose this, you start to get uh, foolish. But you understand that there's nothing that's being built here that we built. I mean, we, we had a part in it for sure. You know, the Bible says each man or each person must be careful how they build on the foundation. So there is building we do, but it is God's building. That's what the scripture says. You are God's building, God's work. It says this in 1 Corinthians. You are God's building. You are God's work. Scripture also says that we are a letter that's written by God, that's read by all people. And so God is writing a letter through you, and he's writing a letter through his church. And that's important, isn't it? What kind of letter is the world reading from us? What kind of building are they seeing? What, what kind of building is, is, is there for them when they need it? This building, this church building here with these walls and this roof, this isn't the building. This could all go away, and the church of God would still be standing because we're the building. Amen? We're the building. We are the structure that God has built. We are the living stones that are being fit together to make a house suitable for God. In fact, the scripture goes on and says we're living stones being fit together that made a house in which the spiritual priests can offer spiritual sacrifices made acceptable through Jesus Christ. What's so fun about that little passage of scripture is that you're the stones that make a building when they're put together. You're also the priests in the building. And you're also the sacrifice in the building. Because that's the sacrifice we're offering. We're offering our lives as living sacrifices. And so if we were to believe Peter there, we believe this, that there are sacrifices God gave me to give that only makes sense in the context of the building of God. It only makes sense in the context of the house of God. I don't know if you guys, I know some of you did not grow up in a church. Some of you did. I'm not sure how your parents taught you how to act in church. Maybe you were that kid that everybody winced when they walked into the room like, oh boy, they came to church today, great. We're actually always happy. I mean, you know, those kids turn out, sometimes those kids turn out to be the best ones, right? The ones we wince about sometimes turn out to be the best kids. That made Elizabeth stand up. That was so, she's like, praise God, I got to tell you, I was that kid. <laughs> No, we're so, we're so thankful for all of the kids, but I remember when I was a child, and my parents would say, don't run, don't run, don't run in the church, and I would find loopholes. I'm not running, I'm galloping, you know, I'm doing all these different things. I figured that would get me out of jail. We had in Loon Lake some parents telling their kids, don't run, this is God's house. And so the downside to saying that and not explaining it to a child is that I had a ki two kids, but one kid in particular, every time he saw me, he, he said, hi, God. And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not God. He just figured I lived there. Every time he showed up, I was there, right? And this is God's house, and you're God, so you must be God. And I had to really fix that. And so one of the things that, that you have to um, teach your kids is that this building, yes, it's holy, um, because we've gathered to worship. But in fact, the building is not God's house, right? So I know it helps your kids not run in, in the church, but we, we have to learn that the house of God are the people of God. We're the house of God. You know, this building could burn down. I hope it doesn't, but it could burn down tomorrow, and it would, the house of God did not burn down, right? The building burnt down. A building is just a building. We could meet in the forest and have church. 
right? It's not, it's not, the, the church is not about the, the physical structure. It's about the spiritual structure. That's, that's what matters. And so that's what God is building. This whole last few weeks, and we're going to probably wrap it up right here this week, but this whole last few weeks we've been talking about, are we building something that will last? Is God building through us something? Or, you know, because we did read in 1 Corinthians 3 where it says each person has got to be careful how they build because the day will come when each person's work will be tested with fire. And the person who stands there and says, my work is still standing through the fire, that person's going to get a reward. But the person whose work is burned up, they'll suffer loss. And the Bible says they're still going to be saved. Thank you, Jesus. I'm still saved. I'm, I'm still going to heaven. But, but I, I want to I show up before the king, and I want to say this is, this is something that, that my life can show. This is a purpose that you gave me that, that I walked out at least to some degree. And I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't look at God and say, I wasted my life. I, I had all these resources you gave me. I had these, this blessing of life that you gave me, the breath in my lungs, the, the spirit that you put inside me when I was born again. And, and what did I do with it? I don't want to say that. I want to be able to say, this is, this is what you started and this is what you finished. And I was blessed to be a vessel you could use. I want to, I want to be able to say, this is the work that you called me to and it's still here. Right, Moses wrote a psalm. You may you may not know, but Rose, Moses 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 wrote a psalm, and uh, he wrote it near the end of his life. As an old man, he wrote one of the psalms, and he wrote it after. You you got to remember, a whole generation died in the wilderness. A whole generation died. All of Moses's friends died, except for Joshua and Caleb. He was one of the last of that generation to go. Their kids all went into the promised land, but each one of them died in the wilderness. And you can imagine, it's tough hearing the report your, your, your old buddy who you've walked for 40 years through the wilderness with is, is now gone. And he wrote a psalm about how, how tough it's been to live as a nomad and wander and not know where your home was. Because even, even before they came out of Egypt, they were in a foreign land, Right? We were in a foreign land, and then we came out of a foreign land, and we wandered. We haven't had a home. And then he says, but you've been our home. This whole time, you've been our home. You've been the, the solid thing that we had. We didn't have a home, but you were our home. And he begins to think, because this is, these are the things you start to think as you're approaching death. You start to think about life and, and how temporary everything is and how fast it goes. And he says everything, he says, our lives are just like this. They just... Like a whisper, they go away. But you are eternal. And so Moses is coming to grips with the fact that everything that he sees and touches is temporary, but God is eternal. And so he realizes everything that matters that he's ever done in his life has been through God because that's the eternal thing. That's what's, Everything that's eternal is the stuff that's going to stand. And at the end of the psalm, he prays a prayer for God's favor, for God's blessing. And a lot of us in North America, when we pray for God's blessing, we're looking for something we can touch. But that is the lowest form of blessing. Come on, guys, because that's the thing that passes away first. Right? It's the thing that passes away first. Now, God, God throughout the Bible blesses people in different ways. And then sometimes they go through times. We see it over and over in the New Testament. Paul said, I'm content with little. I'm content with much. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He didn't define his blessing by how much he had. 
That's not what defined blessing to him. In fact, the, the, the blessing he spent all his life pouring into was the spiritual blessing that God had put on him. He says he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And so there's this idea that, that Moses is praying and he goes, Lord, I pray for your favor on us. Now he's seen the hand of God that's provided for them. He's seen the hand of God that's given them victory. He's seen the hand of God that's brought them out of Egypt and into right to the edge of the promised land. And he prays this, establish the work of our hands. Oh God, establish the work of our hands. The word established there literally means make permanent. Make permanent what we've put our hand to. Lord, make our work permanent. That's the favor he's asking for. That's the blessing he's asking God for. Make what we've done permanent. Make it last. That's the prayer of a righteous person that sees beyond their own life. If the Lord doesn't return before you go the way of the grave, I don't know if anybody's going to remember my name past a generation. But I know this, that whatever I do and whatever you do, we have got to pour our lives into the things that will last. Whether or not they remember our name is not the point. But whether they remember his name, that's the point. That's the big thing, right? And if we can pour our lives into it, we can make everything about that. If we can pour our lives into the eternal and say, Lord, establish the work of our hands. This church may, may become something else. They, it may merge with another, this gathering may merge with another one. It may, it may change a name. I don't know what's going to happen. But, but I know that God is building something here that's not just about the word church as we know it now. God's building you. He's building your kids. He's building a, a, a body that functions together. He's building the church in Lloyd Minster. And that is supposed to be longer than, than just, well, a, a trend or a fad. Well, this is the church or this is the thing that's in right now. It's got to be bigger than that. So we've been talking about building with, with blocks that will last and building with, with, uh, on a foundation that's solid because we don't want to see a waste of our time. This is the time. This is a year when you're going to see God's work proven in your life. You're going to see the real thing proven, and you're going to see the fake and the flimsy exposed. Because I really do believe this is, we're, we're walking further and further in a time where each person's work is going to be tested. And we've been talking about building on the right thing, building with the right thing, building on the right foundation. And I want to wrap it up with this thought, and I won't take too long, but I want to wrap it up with the thought of this, is that we have to get it out of our heads that building is just a, a process where once it's built, we just leave it. And it'll be fine. If we built it right, it'll stay and we don't have to touch it. Because this is a living building, right? We're living stones. God compares us, in the New Testament, we're compared to two or three different things. Uh, more than that, but, th but three big ones. We're compared to a building, but a building of living stones. We're compared to a body, right? A physical human body. And sometimes we're compared to like a tree, right? Or a plant, and if you think about all of these things, what do they all have in common? Is they all have in common, they're all alive, right? Even the building is made of living stones. Peter goes out of his way to say living stones. And living things, if you have a garden, if you have farmland, if you have animals, you know you don't just say, well, I have it now. I've planted this tree, I'll leave it alone. Or I've planted these tomatoes. Now, now that they're planted, nothing can ever harm them. You, you've got to 
take care of these things, right? You've got to have, you've got to, they've got to be watered. They've got to be maintained. They've got to be cared for. And here, we're talking about something that God has built. We didn't build it, but God built it. But he's called us to his work, and he says working together. Paul says working together with God. This is what we do. And I know that, that a lot of times we'll build with the right things, but we talked about it a couple weeks ago. What we began in the Spirit has to be finished by the Spirit. He says, having begun by the Spirit, have you tried to be perfected by the flesh? It's the same thing with, with everything that we put our hands to. We can't just say, well, that will always be the same. If I built it right, it'll always be the same. We've talked about how if it's built right, it'll last. It'll stand the test. But I also want to tell you that there is a thief that's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. John 10. Jesus said the thief comes only but to steal, to kill, and to destroy but I've come, you may have life, and have it to the full, or have it abundantly. We read last week in Ephesians chapter 6. In fact, let me, let's read it again real quick. Just to refresh your heart and refresh your mind. Ephesians 6, we we're talking about you will be able, right? Three times God says you'll be able to stand. Three times you'll be able to stand, you'll be able to resist, you'll be able to stand firm. He says if you put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Once again, you will be able. Hear that. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand there firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, which is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, sorry. But he says, you'll be able to stand You'll be able to resist. You'll be able to quench every fiery dart of the enemy. And the first thing he says is you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you know that there is a scheming enemy? Right? I mean, he's got nothing original, but the, the old hits still work. Right? The same four chords are still working on us. The same tricks he's pulled for centuries, millennia, he's still pulling. People still fall for it. And a lot of times when we've, we've seen what God has built in our life and we go, well, it's fine, it'll stay, but, but Jesus said he's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. What's, you know, what's he stealing? He's stealing something that you have, right? You, somebody can't steal something you don't have. A lot of times what we say is, well, we say if I have it, I'll always have it. But, but Jesus says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy He's coming to steal something, and here Paul says there is a scheme of the enemy. There is a plan of the enemy that you've got to stand firm against. He also says that you've got to resist an evil day. Not just survive an evil day, but resist. Peter says, be sober-minded, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So stand firm, therefore. 
Think about it. If Satan has to prowl around looking for someone to devour, that means he can't devour everybody. But Peter says, be sober-minded, be vigilant. What does vigilant mean? Be on the lookout. Be alert. We have an enemy. Now, you might just say, I'd rather we not talk about that because I'd rather just talk about Jesus. But if you want to talk about Jesus, Jesus talked about the devil a lot. You know that, right? Read the Gospels? Devil is a big character in that book, in those books. Jesus is constantly referring to him. In fact, you know, the scripture tells us, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. Jesus spent his whole ministry tearing down the works of Satan. And he tells us that. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Jesus said that, right? If If I made that up, you'd be like, don't ever, don't you dare ever say that again. He will not rule, he does not rule, but Jesus said, He's the ruler of this world. Does that mean he has the right to it? No. What it, what it means is, is that he is manipulating, he is controlling. In fact, this is what's, what the Bible says. When you were saved, you were rescued from the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of God. You were taken out of Satan's control. How does Satan control? What well, Jesus tells us, he is the father of lies. I know I'm bouncing around a lot, but you'll catch it. We'll, we'll pull it all together, hopefully. If Satan is the father of lies, then one of the, one of the main ways he's going to steal, kill, and destroy is by lying to you so that he can steal what God has put inside of you. Lying to us so he can steal what God has built. Anybody here like to play Jenga? Jenga fans? Yes. Some of you decidedly did not put your hands up. And I know you know what Jenga is, and you've made a stand. No, I don't like that game. Maybe you're a mom that just hates cleaning it up every time, the loud noises in the kitchen. Maybe you're a dad that that says, this is teaching our kids shoddy workmanship. I don't know. But when you build that that tower with Jenga, you first build it, it's secure, right? But every turn, what are you doing? You're removing structural pieces, and you're compromising the structural integrity of that building, every piece you remove. If Satan is trying to steal, could it be that the very things that built you up to the place you are right now, the very things that built the body to the place they are right now, that God built his church on, these important integral elements, these structural things that that hold the whole thing together, including you, you're one of those pieces. Could it be that by removing one piece in the right place, it weakens the whole thing? A lot of us say, I'm not that valuable. I don't think they'd care if I was there or not. I don't think they'd care if, if I was still part of this church or if I still, you know, love the Lord. I don't think anybody would ever notice if I went away. You know, we, not only is that a lie from the enemy, but it's, it's a destructive lie because you take that piece out and it weakens the whole tower. I don't care who's on the bottom, who's on the top. You take one piece out, it weakens everybody else. Or the things, the truths that God's built your life on. That faith, hope, and love, those fruit of the Spirit, all those things, the, the, the revelation that God has given that you built your life on. And everything you have is now because of what God built in you. And then you look back and go, I think I'm pretty secure right now. I don't know if I still believe this. And I don't know if I still trust this. And I don't know if I trust this. And piece by piece, we're removing pieces, thinking, well, the work is built, it'll always be like this. 
But once you start taking these pieces out, it weakens it. It weakens it until eventually it collapses. If Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, we know what stealing looks like. We sure know what killing looks like. But do you know what destroying looks like? The word in the Greek for destroy means to, to, to utterly destroy, to, to make ruin of. Has anybody here ever visited, like, ruins, ancient ruins or a ruined building? Even here in Saskatchewan, you, you see ruined buildings, right? You, you go and see a, you know, uh, on the way to Edmonton, actually. Have you ever seen that, that stone building that's kind of in ruins? Have you ever been tempted to pull over on the highway, jump the fence, and take pictures? But you know that, that you shouldn't do that, that you should ask. You know, same thing when you're trampling people's canola fields, you should ask, right? But you know, I look at that, and you see these ruins, and sometimes we, we wonder what it'd be like to live in a place that actually had a lot of old buildings. We don't. Like, we, we have 100-year-old buildings, but you go to Europe. I mean, like, if you go to the east coast of Canada, you see some old buildings, right? And then you go, you go further east, and you go all the way to Europe, and they're like, you think that's something? Look at these buildings. And then you go to Africa and Asia, and then you begin to see, you know, or the Middle East, and you begin to see buildings. That they go, oh, you think that's something in Europe? Watch what we've got. But when you see those ruins, there's still building blocks there. There's still stones there. But what's the problem? They're not on top of each other. They're not fit together anymore. Right? When Jesus prophesied about the ruin of the temple, what did he say? Not one stone will be left upon the other. See, if God fit together his house and he puts you, you're one of the pieces and, and I'm one of the pieces and we're all, one, we're all these pieces. And then th there's the other thing about, about, about how we're, we're building. You know, we're building with revelation. We're building with the truth of God. We're building with all these things. And you think about how God so masterly fits them together, masterfully fits them together. Ruins don't necessarily mean that the blocks themselves have been pulverized but that they've been taken apart so that they no longer make a structure. They've been deconstructed. The word destroy in English comes from an old English word, stroy, which comes from our Anglo-Saxon roots, but it, it, what, what it means is the same word as destruct. You can construct something and you're building it, right? You destruct something, you're tearing it down. To destroy means to unbuild. So there is an enemy that wants to unbuild what God built. And what does Ephesians 6 say? Stand against him. He has schemes. Know his schemes. You know, when most of us, if you're a mature Christian, sometimes here's the problem with being in, the, in Christianity long enough, you start to believe that the only way the enemy's ever going to attack you is head on, but like full Brunt attack that is so obvious it's the devil that everybody and their neighbor knows it's the devil. It couldn't possibly be a good thing. It's Of course it's the devil. And yet Satan is scheming. He's cunning. So we, we just figure, well, an attack of the enemy, well, that would be this or that or this or that. And yet Jesus talked a whole lot about how much Satan lies. I mean, one of his main attacks is lies. And yet when we talk about being attacked by the enemy, most of the time we're not talking about being lied to. Why? Because we don't want to admit our thoughts are lies. We don't want to admit our feelings are lies, do we? No, I, I have the right to feel this way. I am justified in feeling this way. You couldn't possibly have been lied to. Absolutely not. All of these people are being used by the devil to attack me. 
Let me ask you what's easier. What's easier, for the devil to turn everybody against you or for him just to plant a thought that everybody's against you? What would be easier, turn a whole bunch of loving Christians against you or convince you that everybody is against you? So now everything they say, you see through a lens. Everything they say, you see through this blurry lens, they're out to hurt me. They're out to get me. And with that one lie, he's began to take the Jenga pieces out. That person, you needed that person. No, I don't. I don't work in the same team as them. We don't even talk. And yet, this person holds up this person, which holds up this person, which is buttressing this person over here. And these pieces are fitting together to make a house. And you might say, I don't need them. But God tells us, switching metaphors to the body, he says, the eye is not allowed to say, I don't need you, ear. Uh, and the nose is not allowed to say, I don't need you, eye. We are not allowed to say, I don't need you. If you were gone, I wouldn't notice. And then he goes on and he says, you're not allowed to say nobody needs me. Isn't that, a, isn't that a lie that the enemy sows in our hearts? Nobody needs me. You know, if I just quit, they'd be better off without me. I'm just talking about one scheme of the devil. But as a pastor, it's a, it's a scheme I care a whole lot about. I care a whole lot about resisting this one. Here he says, stand firm against the schemes and resist in the evil day. How do I resist? The same way that God built those things in you, by the Spirit, by faith, by grace through faith, the same way it's built is the way it's maintained. It's just simple, guys. If God, the way God gave it to you, you have got to say, I have nothing in which to resist the devil in my own strength. That's why the passage we just read starts with, finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. I don't have the strength to resist this. It says, put on the full armor of God. Armor that was given to you. Righteousness you could not earn. Salvation you could not achieve. Truth you could not come up with. Peace you could not. It passes your mind. You could never make that peace that Jesus made on the cross. All of these things that God has put on you. A sword that you could not forge with your own intellect. No argument you could come up with would cause the devil to run away. He'd laugh in your face and say, I've been around for thousands of years. Don't you think I've met smarter people than you? I've talked to Nebuchadnezzar. Who are you? And yet, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, and he goes running from that. When Jesus sent his disciples out, they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Yet, how did Satan attack? He, he attacked by manipulating and lying and controlling a person on the inner circle. And then one by one, he broke them all down. Peter, you've denied Jesus. How could he ever use you again? Philip, Thomas, Nathaniel, y'all ran away. How can God trust you to stand when it counts? You ran away when he was arrested. All these things, piece by piece, Satan thinks, I finally got him. But through the resurrection, brick by brick, Jesus rebuilds his church. He calls them back together. He says, Peter, you're in the ministry. <laughs> Encourage your brethren. 
He tells the women, go tell them I'm alive. There is such, a, there is such an evangelistic power in this message that Jesus is alive, that that starts, that reverses the crumble that's been happening, starts to rebuild, and then Jesus brings the pièce de résistance, the big piece that everybody's been waiting for, says, I'm going to give you my spirit. My spirit is going to do something in you. You're not going to be wimps anymore. You're not going to be afraid anymore. You're not going to be uh, divided anymore because he's going to unify you. He's going to send you out. It's that same spirit that's binding the church today. I want to read you something from 2 Corinthians. Actually, I'm going to read a couple of verses fairly quickly just so we can get it together. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But can I read you something from Ephesians 4 real quick? What are you going to say? No? I have a microphone. <laughs> Sometimes we ask questions just to see if you're still with us. Ephesians 4 um, is brilliant because Ephesians 4 tells you this is who you used to be and this is who you are. The wonderful thing about who you are is it's something God has been building in you. It's a a work God did when you were born again. But it's a continuing work, not in the sense that Jesus is, is still being sacrificed for you or your sin is being paid for still. That's been done. The work that's continuing is you are being conformed to the image of Christ, transformed into the image of his son, actually. You are, you are becoming like him. That Ephesians 4 talks about putting on the new self and putting off the old self. You have to choose to put off the old self. And watch this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. He says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, He's just told you put on the new self, and the new self is righteous, and the new self is holy, and the new self is true. And then he says, Lay aside falsehood. He tells you what to put on, then he tells you, take that off. Don't lie to each other. Speak truth, each of one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The tower falls if the pieces are removed. We are members of one another, so it's worth speaking truth to each other. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I know a lot of married couples that practice this. Because before I got married, I asked a bunch of older couples that had been married for a while, what's your secret? What are you doing? And this was the most common thing I ever heard. We don't go to bed angry. We work it out. Some of us apply that to our marriage, and we don't apply it to the church. Because we don't feel the same connection. You're not, you, listen, I'm not as connected to you as I am to Tia. True enough. But in this context, he's not talking about married people. He's talking about a church. When he says we're members of one another, he's not talking about husbands and wives. He'll talk about that later in the next chapter. Right now, he's talking about the church. Don't go to bed angry. Anybody here practice that? Or do you say, we won't let another year go by with me still being this angry? (laughs) I won't go through another Christmas like this. Like the sun going down. And guys, we live in Canada. It's winter. We have less time. I mean, we really got to hustle, right? <laughs> it's 4 o'clock, oh no. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it fester. Why? Do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not give the devil an opportunity because the longer you let that fester, the more of an opportunity he has. Do you know what it literally says in the Greek? Don't give the devil a place. 
And the, I believe the King James says it calls it a foothold. In other words, a place is a place he can stand and he can get a grip. You know, have you, I, I almost said, have you ever climbed a cliff? I'm pretty sure none of us have. If you have, that's really cool. But I've watched the documentaries of those guys that have climbed those, you know, those crazy cliffs in Yosemite and those places like that. Or um, is it Yosemite? The Dawn Wall and all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what's the other one? Doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, California, they're climbing these cliffs. And, and you watch the, just the tiny little crevices they stick their fingers in. Have you ever seen that? These little footholds, barely anything that they're grasping on, they're, they're climbing up. It's, and it's insane because it looks like they're scurrying up a, a flat face. But there are some places they cannot traverse without tools because there is no place to put their foot. There is no place to put their hand. There are no gaps. And where there are no gaps, there's not a foothold, there's not a handhold. Can't be traversed. Do you realize that the church of Jesus Christ is the bastion of God against the world that is under the, still under the control of the enemy? The church is the only place in the planet that the devil does not rule. We're the place devil, the devil has no rule here. Doesn't belong here. Has no right to rule in the church. And I don't mean in this church building on a Sunday morning. I mean 24-7, the church of Jesus Christ, around Lloydminster, around the world, Satan has no right to rule in God's church. Jesus is Lord over his church. Jesus is king over his church. We have been rescued from the control of Satan into the kingdom of God. This is a bastion. This is an outpost. Satan has no rule here. So don't give him a place. Don't give him a place to put his foot, get his foot in the door. Get a place where he can put a wedge between and get in the church. That's, it doesn't belong. What God has built, here's how you maintain it. You stay in the strength of God. You stay in the fruit of the Spirit. You stay in the love of God. You know what? This is what the Scripture says. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude says that when these false teachers arise, and he says, and they will. When mockers mock and people follow after their own lust, he says, you beloved. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Building yourself up in your most holy faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep means you're having to make an effort to stay in the love of God. I know you know this. But I know I know this and need to hear it. Because what God has built, there is an enemy that wants to deconstruct what God has constructed. Brick by brick, he wants to take you out. wants to take revelation out of your life, truth out of your life. Right? If I start, listen, if I look back, and you look, some of you that are, have been established in the faith, you look back and you see how God's hand's been on your family. And you see how God's hand's been on your business. And you see how God's hand's been on your whole life. And you look back and go, I've done pretty well. And you forget who built all this. Then slowly you start to say, you know what? Do I really need this? Do I really need to believe this? Do I really need to keep doing this? All the things that got you there, you forget, which is what God warned the Israelites about. He said, if food is falling from the sky, you can't deny it's God. I got hit with man in the eye, right? That's not how it happened, right? It appeared on the ground. It appeared on the ground, right? Like it didn't get hit in the eye. But, but food came from heaven. It, every morning they got up and there was food. 
obviously a miracle. But he says, the danger is when you walk into a land where I'm going to give you vineyards, and I'm going to give you cattle, and I'm going to give you crops, I'm going to bless you. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. He said, the only da- he said it's going to be me that did it. The danger, the thing you need to watch out for is that you don't forget who did this. Because when it was manna, you couldn't deny it. Now that it's, God's using natural means, because even though it's a natural mean, it's a God-given law, seed time and harvest. This is God's law. Right? We say, well, no, it's, it's natural. Like, like I learned in science class. that Yes, you learned in science class that a law that God put in place is working. Praise God for science. Amen? We're not, you know, that it showed the work of God. But it's still God that put that into place. Seed time and harvest is his thing. That's what he started. And so when we sow and we reap, you could start to believe, well, I put the seed in the ground and I watered it. Yeah, but how did you cause that seed to open up? How did, how, did you, how did you form the law of nature that causes the soil to turn that thing? I, all of the things that happen from, from seed to sapling to, to giant tree, how, you may have planted it, but you did not make that thing grow. You helped, right? You knew the conditions. You looked after that, but you could not make it grow. In the same way, we, we, we can go back and we can go, well, I did this. In fact, there's so many examples in the scripture where someone takes their ease and becomes fat. <laughs> in fact, that was the first thing, not to get off on a tangent, but in Ezekiel, he says that's the first problem with Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't that they were perverted. It was that they become fat and proud. Perversion came from that. But they started out being fat and proud, saying we don't need God. When society says we don't need God, it becomes perverted. Because when you stop worshiping God, you start worshiping, you start worshiping created things like self, pleasure, all these other things, and you do become perverse. But it starts with wrong worship. Romans 1 tells us that. So Sodom and Gomorrah, we all know how messed up they were when those angels came and visited Lot. But it all started, the, the Bible tells us, it all started with them getting fat and lazy and saying, we have what we need. So you can get to this place where you say, well, we built something great. This is our tower. And yet, if you forget, you start to remove those blocks that got you there. Satan is stealing, he's killing, and he's destroying. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians 2. Um, the whole letter of 2 Corinthians is kind of awkward. Um, apparently, there's been a letter that really messed things up. Didn't mess, it made things right, but it really caused a lot of drama. And you might say it was 1 Corinthians, but it seems like there's a lot of things hinted at that were worse than what happened. 1 Corinthians is not, he gets on to them, but it's not like really, really rough. But Paul is talking about like, I didn't even visit you for a while because I didn't want to make things worse. And he talks about some things that they, it seems like they had done some things against him and he had done some things, or he had corrected them in a way that caused them a lot of sorrow and then, it was a good thing, but it caused him a lot of tr- sorrow and, and trauma for a bit. And he writes about something that happened. And, you know, there's a sin that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians. It could be it, but it seems like this one's different because it seems like the one he talks about here had a personal element with Paul because Paul says, I had to go out of my way to forgive this guy. So maybe it's what's mentioned in 1 Corinthians, but maybe it's something totally different that we don't know about. The important thing is how they handle it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, somebody's done something bad, 
The whole Corinthian church is not sure if they ever want to see Paul again. He's writing this letter saying, you know, it sounds like you guys like me again, which is good. I'm happy about this. And he's making some things right. But he writes this in 1 Corinthians 2 because he says, I, 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 what he says is, I, I determined I wouldn't come to you in sorrow again. If I'm coming again, we're going to have some happy uh, moments. <laughs> we're going to have some smiles. I'm tired of coming to you and being the bad guy all the time. But it had to be done. And he says in verse 5, if anyone has caused sorrow, he caused sorrow not to me, but in, to some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Whoever this was caused a lot of trouble in the church. Caused a lot of trouble. And, and Paul's saying, it, didn't really, it wasn't just me, it was really all of you. Guys, it wasn't so much about me, it was about you. And he says, in order not to say too much, this is just good practice. When, when we're getting to the other side of something, you don't keep bringing up the thing. Once it's been forgiven, you don't have to describe it in great detail. He has to bring it up, but he's not going to name names anymore. He's not going to bring out details. He says, I don't want to say too much. Why? Because it's time to move on to the healing. He says, in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He says, this guy who sinned against us all, something they had to do was really hard to do. But whatever they did, it worked. This guy's come back, he's repented, and and Paul is saying, listen, he's already gone through enough. He says, we don't want him to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He's already come to repentance. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that the sorrow that's according to the will of God leads to repentance, which leads to salvation or deliverance without regret. You don't keep living in sorrow because he goes on and he says, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So if you think you constantly have, if you've hurt somebody if you, and, and there's been repentance and there's been forgiveness and things have been healed, don't keep living in that sorrow. Don't keep looking at them with sad puppy dog eyes. Move forward because that sorrow is not of God. God's sorrow is just to bring you to repentance. It's the only point is to set you free. Bring you to repentance, which brings you to salvation or deliverance without regret. Amen. The blood of Jesus cleanses regret. It cleanses that shame in us, and so we move forward. He says, I don't want him to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end I also wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But the one whom you've forgiven anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Listen to this. I forgave him for your sakes in the presence of Christ so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Look at this. In case that just blew by a little quick. He's saying, I had to go out of my way to show you I'm forgiving this guy. You should all forgive him. If we don't, we're going to give Satan an advantage. And he says, we're not ignorant of his schemes. We're not stupid. We're not naive. We're not babies anymore. We know that the devil is scheming. And what kind of schemes is he coming up with, apparently? A scheme to divide the church. 
a scheme to destroy this man, a scheme to keep a rift that God has healed. Isn't it Paul that said in Romans <laughs> that you guys have different rules about what you should eat? Some of you think it's holy to eat this way, and some of you think it's faith to eat this way. And he goes, but when you're with somebody who's got a problem, he says, each one's got to be convinced in their own mind. Do you guys know there are gray areas in Christianity that we have to be convinced in our own mind and just honor God the best we can? Now, I know you say, no, there's no gray areas with God. It's either right or wrong. And yet, we have whole passages of the Scripture in the New Testament that tells us for some people this is a problem. And for some people, it's not. So when you're together, don't eat that thing. It causes them a problem. And he says, is it worth tearing down what God has built for the sake of a little food? He says in, another, he says in the same passage, but another place, is it worth destroying the man for whom Christ died so you can have whatever you want to eat? Ooh, wow. He's saying, for you to have this little argument, you to take your stand, I'm right about this. Is it worth tearing down what God built? So what if I always had that in my mind? Is it worth tearing down what God built? God built this. God built my marriage. God built my family. God built the church. God built my life. Is it worth tearing it down so I can feel right about something? So I can hold a little grudge that makes me feel better about my, my own self? Makes me feel like I have the upper hand. Are all these things worth tearing down what God has built? 1 Corinthians 3 says, or 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, specifically chapter 3 talks about the uh, God building his temple and where the temple that the Holy Spirit dwells in. And he says, if anybody destroys the temple, I'll destroy them. It's not a, it's not a surprise that in the scripture it says, mark the one that causes division, causes faction. Don't, don't put up with a factious man, he says was a factious man. That means somebody who is constantly causing factions. You're on my side, right? Kwong's on my side. Joel's on my side. We're on, we're on the team here. You come at me, you're coming at all of us, right? We're on, you're on my side. You're against, you know, if you're asking me to be against somebody in order to be on your side, we have a problem. We got to be for Jesus. We got to be for Jesus. And so here's the thing. I felt that way, though. I felt, I felt the need like, hey, are you loyal or not? But we got to first be loyal to Jesus and then loyal to one another for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of Christ. And we lay our lives down for one another. And what God has built, Satan's not going to destroy. The work that he built, he is able to sustain. It's sustained by the same thing that built it, right? We were built on faith, hope, and love. And faith, hope, and love will keep you going and keep you strong. If you stay in the Spirit, you'll, you'll, you'll live by the Spirit, right? And the Bible says, when you walk by the Spirit, there is no law that can overwhelm that. There is no natural law, no heavenly law, no law that is in existence that can, that can stand against somebody that's walking in the Spirit. So today, I want you to just walk by the Spirit. I want you to be aware that there is an enemy, and his first tool is a lie. And whether that's in your own version that you've created in your mind, or that Satan's planted little seeds. Whether you're the bad guy or everybody else is, it's the same problem. You need to put it under the blood. And you need to, you need to walk in, 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 in the new 
the new self, the new reality, the new mind. You need to say, if this is under the blood of Jesus, now if I haven't dealt with it, I need to deal with it, right? Listen, if I've sinned against you, you need to come to me and say, this, we need to make this right, or I need to come to you if I'm aware of it and make it right. That's what Jesus told us. If I've sinned against God, I need to go to God and make it right. If I'm saying, listen, I don't think anybody needs me. I don't think anybody loves me. I don't think anybody likes me. I don't think anybody, I don't think I'm useful. I need to go back to what God says about me. I need to go back to 1 Corinthians and see how he picks the weak and the, and the not so mighty, the not so wise, the not so noble, so that he can show his glory. And I can realize he wants to use me. If I think I'm the only piece that matters, and of course God's going to use me, it's everybody else that I've got a problem with, then I'm going to humble myself under the mighty hand of God so that I don't get knocked down and something worse happens. But I want to tell you, God is building something. If it's going to last, like we said before, it needs to be built with the right material on the right foundation. But we also need to watch that we don't give the enemy a foothold. Let him scramble and try to find a foothold on a flat rock. As the people of God stand united together, fitted together, so there is no crack, no fissure, no division. If there is a division, you make it right. You go, you make it right. You forgive. Listen, some things require a conversation between you and me. Some things I got to go to you and say, I've got an issue. Some things I just need to get over. You know, right? Like, if you're the person that goes to everybody and goes, I have a problem with the, the way you um, tie your shoes. <laughs> and uh, the pastor said we need to make things right if we have a problem. And I have a real problem. It offends me the way you tie your shoes because you don't tie them well. <laughs> Do you know that's maybe something I should just deal with and not talk to you about? <laughs> have you ever had that? I'm trying to close here. But, like, have you ever had that in church where someone's like, I have to apologize to you for years. I've just thought you were ugly. And... <laughs> And now the Lord showed me that ugly people are good in the family of God, too. Like, we need everybody. And then you're just like, I wish you'd never said that to me. Thanks. You couldn't have worked that out with Jesus? Like, you didn't have to tell me that. I was blissfully unaware of your opinion. Now I have to deal with my heart towards you. Thanks. Some things you just go, Lord, this is a me problem. It's how I'm perceiving this person. It's not their fault. It's mine. I can deal with it. Other things, it's like, we need to talk. Because we can dance around this issue for 10 years, and we'll forget what the problem was. We just have a problem with each other. I didn't even mean to get into this part of the destruction thing. I mean, come on. I, I had a whole lot to say about just our lives and other parts, but let's listen. We're the church. So we can start here, you know. It's the same principle that works in the church as it does in your family, as it works in your own life. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Don't listen to the father of lies. Walk by the spirit. You will not fulfill the desire of the flesh. Live by faith. And you'll not put faith in your own flesh or somebody else. If you don't put your faith in people, you won't be disappointed by people. If you put your faith in God who uses people, you're going you're to not be disappointed. You'll see God work. I truly believe this, that God is building something that you're a part of, and I am so thankful you're a part of it. I love this family. I, I know that there is a scheme to stop what God is doing. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk by the same grace that got us here. Keep walking in his grace. Keep walking by faith.
Keep living by the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep fervent in your love for one another, Peter writes, because love covers a multitude of sins. If you feel like there's a multitude of sins you can't get over, let me tell you something about the love of God. It is so big, it can cover a multitude of sins, a multitude of missed expectations, a multitude of missed marks, a multitude of disappointments. When someone cannot get to me, the love of God can bridge the distance. Because that's what Jesus' love did for me. That's how I got saved. That's how you got saved. And it's the same way we're going to walk. Amen.